A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did it have to be this bad? There have been more than 61,000 deaths. The UK has the highest death toll in Europe and the highest number of excess deaths. Almost 20,000 care home residents, the elderly and the vulnerable, died during the first wave alone. Our economy shrunk by a fifth, and even though it won't be as bleak as that by the end of the year, our economic performance is still worse than any other major economy. Over the summer, the number of workers who lost their jobs rose to a record high of 314,000 people. And yet, we haven't had the worst of it yet. Big rises in unemployment are still to come. Of course, a pandemic was never going to be easy. But did it all have to be this bad? That's the question of the year as we limp to December. And in this slow newscast, we're going to try to answer it. The news of the vaccine is obviously a glimmer of light in the otherwise thick and suffocating memory fog of 2020. And I don't know whether it's a quirk of being locked in or of the overwhelming sense of living through history, but if you're like me, you'll have emerged from all this barely able to remember what happened. So at Tortoise, the newsroom that I work in and where we make this podcast, we decided to hold an inquiry to understand what actually happened, in part to ask, did our leadership, our institutions, our systems work in this moment of crisis? And we've spent weeks hearing from experts and witnesses. Over three full days, we heard from people who were presenting evidence and witnesses who were telling us their experiences to help us try and understand the last 12 months. And it gave us, I think, an invaluable map of the immediate past, something otherwise that was just too close to really understand. And throughout this podcast, I'll be joined by my colleague, Giles Wattel, who's going to help me pick through what we learned and what it means. But of course... It wasn't just a cold analysis of the facts. How could it be? It was much, much more than that. The story of 2020 is not about Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings or really one of government policy. It's a story of loss and of grief. And each time he'd been told to stay at home, there was a point when they did refer him to his GP because he commented that he was starting to find blood in his phlegm. They prescribed him some antibiotics, but told him to still stay at home and continue resting. A few days later, he passed away at home. And it is, of course, also a story of resilience, remarkable and inspirational resilience. So here it is. I'm going to tell you the story of the year, because it's only in going back that we can make any sense of it. If slow news can do anything, It's this, it can help us understand the enormity of what we've all just lived through. And it can, hopefully, point us in the right direction.
Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily SenseMaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play Store, and take a free trial. So when I started prepping for this podcast, I'll be honest, I was a bit overwhelmed. So I tried to pick through the small milestones first. When did I become aware of what the virus actually was? When did I start sanitising my hands? It's something I never really did before. So I turned to that sort of strange personal archive, my WhatsApp chats. And my first mention of the coronavirus was on the 28th of January. A friend texted me a link. Amazing photo set from Wuhan, they said. The Chinese government had just imposed a lockdown on the city and on that same day, a video started circulating of residents shouting keep up the fight from their balconies. A couple of days later, my texts remind me that a friend and I got together to watch Contagion. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. A few weeks later, when it went to the top of Netflix's trending list, my friend and I joked that we had been ahead of the curve. It all felt so far away. It wasn't coming for us here in London. Of course, I now see the naivety and the arrogance of those jokey texts. The coronavirus was first reported to the World Health Organization on the 31st of December 2019, and it was first sequenced by scientists on the 10th of January. The first meeting of SAGE that we know of, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, dealing with the coronavirus happened on the 22nd of January. But at that time, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, told reporters the risk to the UK was low. The UK is one of the first countries to have developed a world-leading test for the new coronavirus. The NHS is ready to respond appropriately to any cases that emerge. And the public can be assured that the whole of the UK is always well prepared for these types of outbreaks and will remain vigilant and keep our response under constant review in the light of emerging scientific evidence. In fact, just days later, Boris Johnson gave a speech in Greenwich in London in which he said, basically, hold your horses. There's nothing to get so het up about. And when there is a risk that new diseases such as coronavirus will trigger a panic, and a desire for, for market segregation that go beyond what is medically rational to the point of doing real and unnecessary economic damage, then, at that moment, humanity needs some government somewhere that is willing at least to make the case powerfully for freedom of exchange. Some country ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles and leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing as the supercharged champion of the right of populations of the earth to buy and sell freely. Remember, this was unfolding at a crucial moment for Brexit. The 31st of January was Brexit Day. It was to be the dawn of a new era. That was the real headline Johnson wanted to remind us. 
So there it is. The UK has left the European Union. 47 years of history brought to an end in the name of sovereignty. But the scientists were telling us something else. There was, let's say, a growing dissonance. I remember at the end of January, I interviewed Jeremy Farrer, an expert in infectious diseases and a member of SAGE. The coronavirus outbreak in China, and now global, is unprecedented. Uh, we're in the middle of it at the moment. There's tremendous uncertainty again, and we're all having to make decisions now without complete data and information, and we're trying to make the right decisions and do the right things. The day after that Boris Johnson speech downplaying the virus, I caught a flight. Remember those? It was the 4th of February. I texted a friend from Gatwick to say, coronavirus posters everywhere. Then I sent a picture to my family WhatsApp group of a bottle of antiviral foam, the first I had ever bought in this pandemic. I'm braced against the coronavirus, I wrote. But I wasn't the only one still struggling to take it all seriously. Around this time, Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, disappeared. For 12 days, he wasn't seen. He headed to Chevening, one of the government's grace and favour country homes, and he was deep in a high court settlement fight with his wife. He was distracted. Not long after, he announced he's engaged and he's having a baby. But elsewhere, scientists were now really starting to sound the alarm. I think we're in the early phases of a global pandemic at the moment. Then, on the 28th of February, the first British national died on board the Diamond Princess cruise ship. More than 700 of its passengers have now contracted the infection. Six have died. The sixth, confirmed today, is the first Briton to fall victim to the illness. By this point, the public health messaging was wash your hands for 20 seconds. You might remember that creepy moment silently singing to yourself, wondering if, really, we might all just be going collectively mad. And then the tone shifts. By the end of February, the NHS starts warning that a lack of personal protective equipment, PPE, is going to hit health workers hard. We are, we are very worried about what's going to come. We're worried that if we don't have masks now, then at one of the peaks of this crisis, what's, if we don't have masks to protect ourselves, you think it's just bits of cloth for an advanced country. We don't have bits of cloth to cover our face. If that's the problem at the start, then what's it going to be like in a few months' time? And that's filling us with anxiety and worry. And again, as On the 2nd of March, a friend of mine, an anaesthetist working in London, texted me to say, my hospital has coronavirus, with the emoji of a man with his face in his hands. It suddenly felt a lot closer. And in fact, it was that day that for the first time, Boris Johnson attended his first COBRA meeting on coronavirus. He had missed others before that, and Johnson's failure to attend those early emergency meetings was significant. Here's my colleague Giles. This was a key part of the Sunday Times report early in the first wave of the pandemic, whose central allegation was that the Prime Minister wasn't concentrating on the emergency at hand. There were five COBRA meetings on COVID that he did not attend. It's a sign of how seriously Number 10 took that report that they put out a 50-page response, trying to rebut it line by line. On the specific question of whether Prime Ministers were expected to attend COBRA meetings, Number 10 argued that they were not, and they offered two examples of cases in which previous Prime Ministers had not. In one of them, Alan Johnson had been chairing a meeting in 2009, and Gordon Brown wasn't there. 
Well, it turns out that Gordon Brown was on the phone to that meeting, even though he was on an official visit to Poland. Another example that they gave was that Grant Chaps chaired a COBRA meeting on the collapse of Thomas Cook. It's true that Boris Johnson wasn't there. It's because he was on a plane to the UN General Assembly in New York. So the best examples that Number 10 could come up with to make the argument that prime ministers did not generally attend COBRA meetings were not good examples. They do. I mean, it, it could not have sent a more um, powerful message that Johnson considered other things more worth his time than to, than to fail to show up to those meetings. It's now early March and things are starting to change and fast. On the 3rd of March, the government issued its coronavirus action plan, which had three phases, contain, delay and mitigate. On the 12th of March, Boris Johnson gave a press conference that finally sends a significant warning signal. This is the worst public health crisis for a generation. Some people compare it to... The Guardian reported that this was a marked change of tone to previous press conferences. Crucially, at this point, Boris Johnson said that they were considering banning large public events, but that scientific evidence suggested that banning such events will have little effect on the spread. That's important, and we'll come back to that. But I remember I watched this press conference curled up on my sofa with that strange, disassociative feeling that history was happening right there, right in front of me on my TV, and it felt somehow enormous and mundane at the same time. I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. And... Uh, the chief scientific advisor will set up. But back then, we still imagined that there was a plan, right? And keep in mind that question. Did it have to be this bad? So let's talk about preparation. We should have been one of the best prepared countries in the world. We were told we're ready. In fact, the 2019 Global Health Security Index said that Britain was the country best prepared for a pandemic. But the truth, it turned out, was very, very different. So actually now I need to zoom out of our timeline of the year to the years before 2020. For a while, we heard a lot about things called exercise Cygnus and exercise winter willow and common ground, massive simulations that wargamed our readiness to cope with the pandemic. Well, it turns out we had a lot of stuff on paper, but hardly any of it got used. This is David Alexander, Professor of Risk and Disaster Reduction at the University College London. He appeared as a witness on the first day of our COVID inquiry. We knew fully more than 10 years ago that the socioeconomic and psychological aspects of a viral pandemic would be as serious as the medical ones in many respects. We knew fully that certain things would have to be worked out in advance. But what we've seen, particularly in the UK, since the start of COVID, is a massive amount of improvisation. And in point of fact, improvisation is, is known by emergency planners to be tantamount to negligence in the worst cases. If you cannot have the equipment there, then you should have specialised cast iron arrangements to manufacture and deliver it quickly and distribute it appropriately. I don't believe those are in place in, in, in any manner. There's no point in having a plan if it is pure idealism 
the whole purpose of emergency plans is that they should be living documents, they should be constantly adapted to the reality on the ground. But when I speak to the practitioners, which I do very, very often, they're extremely good, but they have been underfunded, ignored, and marginalized. Why are there no emergency managers on SAGE? 56 members and there are no emergency managers. This is an, an emergency that then is effectively being managed by epidemiologists, virologists and politicians. They're all good at what they do, no doubt. But I think we actually need people with the expertise in the art of managing emergencies to be a little bit more prominent in this. In fact, the scene was set years before the outbreak, as my colleague Chris Cook reported as we were readying ourselves for the first peak of infections, Britain had prepared itself for a flu pandemic like Spanish flu, not a coronavirus. He wrote, It's remarkable, in retrospect, how relaxed the British state was about the risk of a non-influenza pandemic. And reading it now, it is, of course, a staggering error. Because this disease is not like flu. This is Hugh Montgomery, a health expert at University College London. It really isn't. This is so far from being simple flu. And that wrong-footed people. So I think the preparation was there for um, a flu-like illness, and we all know what flu-like illnesses do. And we also know what they do to people with bad lungs and how to ventilate them. And in fact, it's not terribly difficult to ventilate simple flu lungs. The second thing was the infectivity is not the same as flu. So normal seasonal flu has an R-value of maybe 1.2-ish. The R-value, as we know, when this pandemic came out, was well above three. So this is a very, very much more infectious disease, which in some people caused very, very much more complicated disease. And the burden that tracked through to intensive care was very much greater. But we didn't just predict it wrong. We were also poorly set up. Just listen to Sir Michael Marmot, Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health, also at University College London, who 10 years ago conducted a landmark review into health inequality in the UK. The report that we produced in February this year, February 2020, was called Health Equity in England, the Marmot Review 10 Years On. And we looked at what had happened in the 10 years since we published the Marmot Review. And what we saw was a slowdown in improvement in life expectancy. And in fact, the slowdown in the UK was more marked than in any other rich country except Iceland and the United States. The second was increasing inequalities in health. Uh, if you classify people by where they live and the level of deprivation of the local authority, you see the social gradient the more deprived the area, the shorter the life expectancy. And the third feature, which was really alarming, for women in the poorest 10% of areas outside London, life expectancy was going down. They're getting, dying earlier and getting sicker. So that's where we were coming into the pandemic. And inequalities in health tells us something fundamental about the inequalities in society. Then came the pandemic. What we've got is a social gradient in mortality from COVID-19 that looks almost identical to the social gradient in mortality from all causes, suggesting that the determinants of inequalities in COVID-19 
overlap considerably with the determinants of health inequalities more generally. We were prepared for the wrong thing. And to boot, we were heaving ourselves out of years of austerity that had exacerbated the worst health inequalities in a generation. Remember, there was a brief moment when we talked about coronavirus as the great leveller. Well, that was wrong. Just listen to these staggering statistics that my colleague Giles has collected. The great thing about the inquiry was uh, the detail that our witnesses brought to the discussion. So I'll just dive in and give you some examples. Maranisha Suleiman from the Health Foundation, drawing on data from Public Health England and the Office for National Statistics, found that at least for the peak of the first wave, that is the months March to July, six out of 10 COVID deaths were of people with some form of disability. Uh, And separately, we learned from Tom Redfern of the Alzheimer's Association that more than a quarter of all the COVID deaths in the UK have been of people with some form of dementia. Separately, Chris Cook reported in our SenseMaker that it has been found that people with Downs are at much higher than average risk. And and the same data sets from PHE and the ONS show that black and ethnic minority groups are at much higher risk of infection and death. So the headline figures, black people three times more likely than average to die with COVID and people with disabilities 11 times overall more likely than average to die with COVID. So the finding that this sort of exaggerates inequalities rather than levels the population couldn't be more stark. And then there's the the separate question of how the pandemic discriminated by, by gender. Now, we know that in clinical terms, men are more likely to die than women. But the pandemic has targeted women in in other ways because they are in in many ways more vulnerable. So, for example, the Fawcett Society has found that 70% of health workers are women, 83% of social care workers are women, 92% of childcare workers are women. These are sectors in which it has been the most difficult to work from home. So they are most vulnerable and most uh, affected by the, the, the pandemic in that respect. I mean, those numbers are really very striking to me. So in terms of preparation to answer the question, did it have to be this bad? The answer is no. Let's get back to our timeline. A day after Boris Johnson's press conference warning that deaths were now inevitable, the Cheltenham Festival went ahead. That's right, thousands of people gathered, 125,000 to be exact, to watch the races. The next day, Liverpool played Atletico Madrid at Anfield. 52,000 people attended, 3,000 of them had flown in from Madrid, which was already partially in a lockdown. You might well at this point be thinking, what? And at this point, other countries had already locked down. Italy, China, South Korea. But what's also really striking is that as these events went ahead, the government announced that it was shifting its policy from containment of the disease to delaying it. Community testing and tracing was stopped. And at that time, you could only get a test in a hospital. 
and that had a devastating impact. This is Nazir Afsal, a solicitor and the former chief prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service in the northwest of England. My brother got ill in the middle of March. He was told to go home by the hospital. On the 1st of April, he went to A&E. They tested him for COVID uh, in the hospital, but they sent him home with some medication. He died on the 8th of April, and the test came back positive on the 9th of April. You can see why February is now characterised as the lost month, but March too was chaos. And this brings us to the next bit in trying to answer, did it have to be this bad? Let's turn to leadership. We know that Boris Johnson missed five COBRA meetings on COVID-19. We know, given the division of Brexit, that he had assembled a cabinet that was based much more on loyalty than on competence. It's something that Gus O'Donnell, the former cabinet secretary, the highest official in the British civil service, talked about when he gave evidence at our inquiry. This hit other countries first. We should have been learning from them. We should have realised very early on that we were very, very short on evidence. So the ONS should have been up there doing random sampling, which they eventually got to. I would not have wanted to have SAGE as the key operator in all of this, have the central role You need some health stuff, but all of the things you're using are about to control it, are changing behaviour. So you need your behavioural experts, you need your treasury, you need the economy people in there, you need people telling you what happens when you start schools, what are the social implications, what we learned from Asia, what we learned from other experiences. The thing the Prime Minister got basically wrong was the strategic framework, you know, the strategy, no framework. So I think... It was a very inexperienced prime minister and cabinet that didn't actually collect the evidence and ask the questions which would have revealed the degree of uncertainty and found ways to reduce that uncertainty. At a time when the gravity of the situation was really hitting home, Johnson was still behaving with his characteristic pomp and bluster. Remember, there was that strange talk. Squash that uh, sombrero. An unexpected and invisible mugger has somehow robbed me of my mojo. We have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. Arm wrestling, leg wrestling, couple and wrestling, we will beat it. And that's something that my colleague Giles has focused on. Johnson's character mattered in all of this. His instinct is not to intervene. He regards government more often as part of the problem than the solution. So in the session that we held on his role uh, specifically, Alex Thomas from the Institute for Government, made the point that he is not disposed naturally to act and was not when it really counted in this pandemic, which is ironic in a sense, given that he worships Churchill, has written about Churchill, and that Churchill's, one of his mantras was action this day. It's what he used to put at the bottom of memos to ministers during the war. We needed a bit of action this day. And, you know, crucially in uh, February and March when he was hesitating, well, he hesitated instead of demanding uh, full and mandatory lockdown. So back to the year. By this point, it's mid-March. Europe has become the centre of the pandemic. Spain has locked down. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, announces that £330 worth of grants and loans and tax cuts are going to go to businesses to help keep them going. The NHS is clearing as many beds as possible to make space for coronavirus victims. 
And of course, there was a brief, disastrous flirtation with herd immunity, the plan to let the virus infect 60% of the population until that was a study by Imperial College in London that showed that that might result in 500,000 deaths. And it's of course hard to talk about this bit of the year without talking about the deep anxiety and the confusion. I remember lying in bed after a particularly chaotic day, watching press conferences, obsessing over infection numbers, totally unsure of what to expect, what to do, calling my parents. Suddenly I wasn't sure when I would see my Polish grandmother again, who was 84. Suddenly she wasn't just a two-hour flight away. We were stuck far, far apart. And there was still that strange dissonance. I was still going to work, was watching Netflix. Yes, some people were panic buying toilet paper and yes, there was a sense of rising panic. But there weren't bombs going off outside, the army wasn't in the street. You could still kind of kid yourself that things might be normal. And so those final days before the UK lockdown was announced on the 23rd of March were strange and uneasy and haunting days. Around that time, my dad called me to say that he was starting to feel unwell. I think I've got it, he told me. And then it came. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. The next day, the NHS called for a volunteer army and 700,000 people answered the call within 24 hours. We all suddenly learned what the word furlough meant. Two days later, millions were clapping for the NHS. And I did it too, of course. I hung out of my apartment window with a pan and a wooden spoon and I banged as hard as I could. We were in crisis, but we were together. We were a society, as Boris Johnson. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. quickly discovered do it together one thing i think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society so thank you to all of you and remember stay at home 
And then the Prime Minister himself got sick. Hi, folks, I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. That's to say a temperature and a, a persistent cough. And on the advice of the chief medical officer, I've taken a test that has come out positive. NHS hospitals. So and it's I here across the river from the Houses of Parliament that in intensive care, the prime minister is battling coronavirus. In the most shocking. It was a sickness that sent chaos and confusion to the heart of the cabinet, and it's something that my colleague Matt Dancona reported on at the time. Here he is talking on this podcast about the shockwaves that went through the government when Johnson was hospitalised with the virus. Ministers really were fearful about what they were seeing in meetings. A normally bumptious prime minister slipping slowly but inexorably into a health crisis, sweaty, breathless, out of it. That's how they now recall him in the last 10 days of March. So the Prime Minister was understandably absent. My dad said to me at the time, listen, if he had it anything like me, there's no way that he can go back to work after experiencing those symptoms. For my dad, it was the beginning of what we later realised was long COVID. My dad struggling for months to feel normal again after getting it. But back in Downing Street, at this time, Johnson's closest and most senior aide, Dominic Cummings no relation of mine, decided to take a trip to Durham to stay at his father's farm. He was seen running out of Downing Street, but at that point, no one knew why. Well, he broke lockdown. We know that now. We know that the excuses given that he was testing his eyesight and all the rest were, and I'm not sure that this is quite a journalistic term, but we know they were bollocks. And as Giles reminded me, Boris Johnson made a huge gamble. In standing by Cummings, in protecting him from the fallout, the Prime Minister wildly miscalculated the strength of the public outrage about Cummings's trip. And he wasted an enormous amount of political capital in doing so. At a time in April when full lockdown was in force, everyone was, had been told to stay at home, even if uh, relatives, loved ones were poorly Uh, Cummings was seen running away from Downing Street and was later reported by the Mirror and then the Guardian to have driven from London to Northumberland where his parents have a farm. And uh, he had gone with his wife and younger son. I won't go into the whole uh, story there, but after the trip was reported, there was a press conference in 10 Downing Street's garden in May, to which all the lobby correspondents, the Westminster correspondents, were were brought. They had their phones removed, and Cummings proceeded to tell this story about the drive to Barnard Castle, where he had been spotted, being a drive to test his eyesight to determine whether he was in fit shape uh, after his bout of COVID to return to London. Between the 27th of March and the 14th of April, what I thought and did he has asked me to repeat that account directly to you. On the face of it, this was a narrow clique of reporters being brought in to hear a preposterous story um, about an individual's uh, misdeed in relation to the guidelines. The government's calculation, or hope, was presumably that people at large, the population at large, wouldn't really mind. Well, they did. They really did mind. This was a summer Saturday when a lot of people didn't have anything to do except 
tune in to the press conference. So a Downing Street press conference with a TV audience of north of five million. And Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor, told us that in the hour after that press conference, when she got her phone back, she added 20,000 Twitter followers in, in that one hour after she had had the wit to ask whether this story didn't show that Downing Street endorsed one rule for its own and a different rule for everybody else. He was not fired uh, before or after that, which turns out to have been a really significant decision to shield him rather than the policy, to save his career rather than lives. So leadership, or rather the lack of it, did it have to be this bad? Well, it turns out, amid the gravest health crisis since the Spanish flu in 1918, we had an unserious prime minister, distracted by his own personal life and his major project in Brexit. We had an outbreak of COVID-19 within government, a huge scandal in the Cummings lockdown trip. As infections peaked, as lockdown yawned on, as the NHS ran at full pelt to cope, did it have to be this bad? The answer is again, no. Doctors were reporting terrible shortages of equipment on the front line. There were shortages of scrubs, of gowns, of disposable goggles. Tests found that the standard issue 11R face mask was actually poor protection against the virus. So by now we're in the middle of April. We're still in lockdown. More than 900 people were dying every day. The hammer really started to come down for the government. Did it have to be this bad in terms of policy? From testing to PPE to care homes, the full scale of the catastrophe was really starting to unfold. And nowhere was this clearer than in our care homes. By the end of April, an estimated 12,526 people had died in English, Welsh and Scottish care homes due to COVID-19. Overall, at that point, there had been more than 34,000 confirmed deaths from the disease in the UK, and that made it the highest rate in Europe. And at that time, I edited an investigation with the reporter Ian Birrell, in which we tried to understand what on earth was going wrong. In one care home that we looked at, 13 residents died of coronavirus in a single week. And of course, it had been predictable. We'd seen the same horrors emerge in Italy and Spain. By the end of April, it was clear that we were following the same hideous path. This is from a conversation that we had in May. Just as a recession reveals businesses that are in bad shape, so this pandemic has exposed the disastrous state of the social care system, so tell me, how did the government prepare? No, I mean, I think this is what I've been talking about to some extent in that it's exposing a system which wasn't fit for purpose. And again, when it did hit, the government put all its effort into protecting the NHS. Now, I have no problem with building Nightingale hospitals or trying to get private companies to build ventilators. I've got no problem with trying to innovate in a time of crisis like that. What I do have a problem with is doing it all at the expense of social care. And that's what we saw. So when suddenly they realised there were problems with all the uh, protective equipment for the for care for the front line of this crisis, the NHS procurement took all the available supplies, leaving care once again without sufficient supplies. All the effort was on the NHS. 
We now know that 19,394 residents of care homes in England died with COVID-19 between March and June. We know that in the same period, 38,000 excess deaths were recorded in care homes in England, a 44% increase in deaths compared with 2019, many of them thought to be undiagnosed COVID-19 cases. Why? Well, because we were too focused on the NHS and the pandemic magnified the problems already rife in the care sector. The UN has called the number of COVID care home deaths across Europe an unimaginable tragedy. This is Rachel Clark, who runs a hospice. She gave us this remarkable testimony at our inquiry. I can state on the record that in very early April, so when we were reaching, approaching the peak of our COVID figures, my hospice came within 24 hours of having to close its doors, by which I mean we would have had to evict all of our patients, many of whom were very close to death. They were literally actively dying. We would have had to have sent them to our local accident and emergency, which was, of course, filled with COVID patients and close our doors because we literally didn't have the PPE we needed to carry on safely. And the only reason our hospice didn't close was because I begged charity contacts I had and we managed overnight to obtain the masks we needed to stay open safely. This was a time when Matt Hancock claimed that the government had tried to throw a protective ring around care homes. So right from the start we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes. We've made sure that care homes have the resources they need to control the spread of infection. Well, we know that ring failed. So what went wrong? We know that the Department for Health and Social Care authorised mass discharges from hospital into care homes of patients infected or possibly infected with COVID. We know that care workers didn't have enough PPE. We know that the Department of Health also failed to ensure regular testing of care home workers and residents, not just in the first wave, but for months, all the way up to October. And of course, this was, for many of us, deeply personal. My other grandparents... Welsh ones, not Polish, by this point had been shielding in their homes for three months. They're in their 80s. And our contact had shifted, like for many other families, to WhatsApp video calls and pictures shared on our group chat. At this point in late May, we were in the habit of sending little snippets of our days to each other, pictures of bread that we had baked, selfies from our daily walks. They were tiny moments that had, of course, taken on huge importance for all of us a wonky picture of yellow poppies grown in my grandma's backyard in South Wales somehow cut through the months apart and the miles and miles between us. But the tragedy in our care homes, the failures in PPE and test and trace, did it have to be this way? One of the things that emerged during our inquiry was the idea that we are a centralised country with a weak centre. I'll let Giles explain. Unlike Germany... We're not a federal country, so the economy is headquartered in London, business is headquartered in London, and so is the government. And so in principle, especially in an emergency like this, every important decision crosses the Prime Minister's desk. But the structural weaknesses that our witnesses pointed to were in the institutions that that Johnson did eventually turn to. So, for example, he turned to SAGE for advice. He did eventually turn to COBRA as a sort of situation room uh, forum for decision-making. Gus O'Donnell told us 
those were completely the wrong forums in which to marshal a coherent response. His advice, again, with the benefit of hindsight, but he knows a great deal more about this than, than most of us, was that it would have been smarter to use the National Security Council as a forum to assemble the evidence and then, crucially, to challenge it. And you've, you've coined a new acronym, haven't you, Giles? What is it? Overpromise, underdeliver, OPED. Exactly as Gus O'Donnell, the former cabinet secretary, told us what you should not do. Did it have to be this bad? The simple answer, with overwhelming evidence, keeping in mind the thousands of people who died alone, without their families, in care homes, is no. By now, at the end of May, things were easing off. The weather was getting warmer and the end of lockdown was in sight. NHS Test and Trace was launched, infections were coming down and by early June we were allowed out to mix with others, to go back to shops and the parks and beaches were heaving. Boris Johnson was doing press-ups for the cameras, broadcasting how fit and healthy he really was after his bout of coronavirus. That was, of course, excruciating, but it's true that there was a lightness around. That month, I went camping. I sat outside for three days straight and gulped in the air, happy to be anywhere but home. I swam in the sea for the first time in months, and my God, it felt good. It was a brief moment of respite. This was the lull after the first wave, when there were just around 550 new cases a day. And this was the government's moment to build a proper test and trace system. And it was a moment to figure out what were we going to do with all these people returning from abroad. Sure enough, Boris Johnson was promising us a world-beating test and trace system. That was on the 1st of June. It was going to involve 25,000 tracers, he told us, able to track 10,000 cases a day. We have a growing confidence uh, that we will have a test, track and trace operation uh, that will be world-beating. And yes, it will be in place. It will be in place by June the 1st. And just to re repeat the figure, since he's invited me to do so, uh, there will be 25,000 trackers. And they will be able to cope with 10,000 new cases a day. But the reality, of course, was different. By the time that the test and trace system was up and running, nearly 40,000 people had died. And it was, very quickly, beset with problems. There were widespread stories of contact tracers with nothing to do, and some of whom were apparently watching Netflix. The first week of August, Test and Trace was reaching only 18,000 people. And it's only on the 10th of August that government realised this very centralised Test and Trace system wasn't working and started to delegate control to local authorities. And they have been able to increase contact numbers and specifically go door to door if necessary. It has to be asked whether the failure to identify those people who are asymptomatic has been particularly problematic in this saga. That's Sarah Ibrahim, a barrister who talked to our inquiry. Key to our test and trace strategy, she said, was this centralised approach, those big lighthouse labs and an army of hastily recruited contact tracers. But that system 
totally bypassed local public health teams, the sorts of people who have experience of doing this stuff, of tracking outbreaks of measles or mumps or food poisoning. For contact tracing to be effective, it needs to reach around 80% of a person's known contacts. Over the summer, the system was barely managing 50%. Fast forward to October, and that new test and trace system was on the verge of collapse after failing to contact nearly 250,000 people over a four-month period. A clear pattern was emerging. Our government was over-promising and under-delivering. And as summer rolled into autumn, testing still really didn't improve. It was struggling, run by the increasingly derided Dido Harding and at a cost of £22 billion. But there was a second scandal that summer too. The government managed to upset a whole generation of kids whose exam results were scuppered by a dodgy algorithm. On the 13th of August, results day, it became immediately clear that something wasn't right. 39% of pupils had their grades downgraded in England thanks to that algorithm. By a mutant algorithm. Which had been built as a replacement for the exams that no one was able to sit. I'm now not going to Durham, which was my dream uni, and I'm not doing the course I wanted to do because of this. And I know that I would have been able to get in if I had done those exams. It's just heartbreaking seeing my friends upset because they haven't got in because of previous results or to do with where you live or what school you go to. It just shouldn't determine how you can do. After at first defending it, the education secretary was forced to admit there were significant inconsistencies. Elsewhere, travellers were returning from their quick jaunts on summer holiday, schools and universities were going back. And again, the demand for testing soared but it became almost impossible to access a test. Stories began to emerge of people being asked to drive from Norfolk to Scotland to get one. The website initially directed me to a test centre in Basingstoke that I know isn't there and had actually been closed down some weeks ago. Every time I went on, the the message said, uh, test not available or wait a few hours and try again. The nearest testing centre with available appointments was uh, 92 miles away. I'm a healthcare professional trying to get back to work. I've been told I can't go back unless I get a negative result. There are no home tests available. People were being turned away from sometimes empty testing sites simply because there wasn't enough lab capacity. We talk about February as a lost month, but August was lost too. In a lull between the first and second wave, the government seemed to gain little ground. Did it have to be this bad? Again, the answer seems to be no. Throughout the summer, like many other people, I had a little seed of dread in my stomach. It was obvious that winter, cold, dark months ahead were going to be bad. Remember Eat Out to Help Out? Yeah, we sniggered when we heard that Chancellor Rishi Sunak was calling it that. And yes, theoretically, we jumped at the chance to eat for cheap in our favourite restaurants. But were we going to pay for it later? Surely we would. Test and trace, after all, still wasn't working. The NHS was burning out. People were starting to lose their jobs by the thousands. By October, research was telling us that 17% of newly detected infection clusters could be linked to the Eat Out scheme cases began to rise again. The R number crept up as the days got shorter. And my friend, the anaesthetist, he was exhausted, 
and he could see that more hardship was coming to his hospital. He talked also about the huge anxiety of all the other work that was piling up. By this point, at the end of October, there had been 46,000 deaths. And this was the moment that the UK started to splinter. The government's lockdown approach moved from national to local. And so a fight started between central government and local government, between city mayors and Downing Street. And that adversarial approach, us and them, appeared mean-spirited and unnecessary. And there was one fight in particular between Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester and the government that was particularly bloody. We uh, oppose um, the Tier 3 proposal and we will not um, cave in to all of the pressure that's being applied uh, to us unless we can be given the clear evidence we will not accept level three in its current uh, form um, and if the government insists that that is it and there's not no further discussion they will probably have to impose it in the end that haunting feeling that things were about to get a lot worse again turned out to be right and in fact it was halloween that ended up being one of the most significant days of the year here's my colleague matt dancona and yet here was the pm flanked by Professor Chris Whitty, the government's chief medical officer, and Sir Patrick Vallance, its chief scientific advisor, proposing to do exactly what he and his colleagues had repeatedly said they wouldn't. That is, impose a national lockdown until Wednesday, December the 2nd. Rarely are a Prime Minister's problems so sharply and vividly dramatised as they were for Boris Johnson this turbulent Halloween. A whole style of government had been put to the test and found wanting. In the words of one cabinet minister, he should have stuck it out. The case for another lockdown was far from settled. History will not judge this weekend kindly. On the case for a second lockdown, it may yet be that the PM did the right thing for the wrong reasons. We will not know the answer to that for weeks as hospitals across the land struggle with thousands of admissions a day and hope that the emergency measures have worked. But the verdict of history on these fateful hours at the end of October is indeed unlikely to be kind. For Boris Johnson, it was truly a Halloween horror, unleashing demons that will haunt him long into the political night. Once again, there was chaos inside Downing Street, and it was an undignified, insular, somewhat narcissistic moment for a government that was about to face the second biggest test of 2020. And then, finally, a second lockdown on the 5th of November. On that day, there were 24,000 new cases. Six days later, on the 11th of November, the UK became the first country in Europe to pass 50,000 coronavirus deaths. But lockdown this time felt different. Compliance was clearly much lower. There were months of lockdown fatigue kicking in and the confusing tier system made it easier for people to just sack it off. And I had, like I'm sure many others did, some awkward conversations with my friends. Some of them were basically just ignoring it all and privately I struggled to figure out how much of a dick I really wanted to be, calling people out who were clearly flouting the rules. I think back to the last couple of months and of gingerly dancing through these new social norms. I think of my friend, the anaesthetist, and what he was going through all over again. Or another friend of mine who works on the front line at a tube station. Surely lockdown still mattered to them. And I think of my grandparents, who were still shielding at home, now for nine months. A whole nine months. But it wasn't all gloom. The vaccine news also broke in early November. Christmas, as the tabloids rejoiced, 
wasn't cancelled. We're going to bring you right up to date with our breaking story this hour. That announcement that trials carried out by the US pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German manufacturer BioNTech suggest they have created a coronavirus vaccine which is more than 90% effective. And then more good news. Joe Biden, despite Trump's best efforts, wins the US election. Today, West Hold in Savannah Guthrie in New York, the moment the entire country has been waiting for after a very close race. NBC News now projects that Joe Biden has won the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, and its 20 electoral votes. And that means we can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. He is president-elect Joseph Robinette Biden. It's almost like we were emerging from a weird fever dream. And I return again to the central question, did it have to be this bad? I ask Giles. So Giles, the the central question that we're trying to ask and answer in this podcast is, did it have to be this bad? Did it? No. I think it's uh, really important to be very clear about that. On behalf of the doctors and nurses and social care workers who have died because they didn't have PPE that they had every expectation to have. And on on behalf of everybody else whose lives have been disrupted because of what uh, Rory Stewart called a certain British smugness. I think that's a, a big part of it. And I mean that in the very specific sense of this government's refusal to raise its eyes from the UK and learn lessons from abroad. If Germany, South Korea, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Vietnam had not performed so clearly uh, better on on every metric, then I I think it'd be perfectly fair to say this was a catastrophe for everyone. Johnson's natural proclivity was to delay, not to learn from uh, Germany, for example, and As a result, it was much worse than it need have been. Sifting through the story of this year has been a strange and sad, but quite a cathartic job. Of course, there's plenty that I've missed out, but that's because otherwise it would have taken you a whole year to listen to. But as a result of doing this, I think I can appreciate a little better the small moments of joy along the way. Like the first time that I mastered a traditional Polish dish and I FaceTimed my nan to show it off to her. Or the happy text I got from my dad when he said that after months and months of long COVID, he was finally starting to feel better. Or the closeness that I built up with my family when we all piled on to video calls and shouted over each other. And that bit of my story is absolutely not unique. I know that we've all had moments like that. And on the bigger scale, I feel like I've emerged with a clear answer. In 2020, in the greatest health crisis we've seen in a century, we had the most serious position of responsibility in this country, the Prime Minister, occupied by an unserious man. We had a radically centralised country, but with a maddeningly weak centre, and a set of brilliant plans on paper, but for the wrong sort of pandemic. And the result? At the time of writing, there have been more than 62,000 deaths. The NHS is warning about the long-term impact on its services. The NHS itself has long COVID. 
more people are going to lose their jobs and the worst of the financial crisis is yet to come. Did it have to be this bad? The answer, on behalf of all of us, on behalf of all of our moments of grief and loss this year, is a resounding no. This episode was produced by Katie Gunning and Matt Russell and featured original music by Tom Kinsella. And special thanks also to Giles Wattell and Merope Mills. Thanks for listening this week and indeed thanks for listening to this podcast in 2020. We only launched it this year and it's been an incredible thing to see it grow and to hear from you, our listeners. As ever, if you'd like to become a member of Tortoise, you can go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial to get a 30 day free trial of our website and our app. We'll be back on the 4th of January with a new episode, an investigation into the people risking their lives to cross the channel. And of course, we'll keep bringing you stories that matter and investigations that matter in 2021. We'll be back on the 4th of January with a new episode and we'll keep bringing you stories that matter. And in 2021... Ah! I can't do it. I can't. I'm falling at the final hurdle. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.